All right. What is going on, everybody? Let me grab my microphone there. Almost, almost forgot that. Welcome back to SaberSims DFS Office Hours. It is Wednesday. It is August 17th of 2022. Thank you all for tuning into the stream here today. My name's Jordan. I'm the head coach here at SaberSim. And on this show, I answer questions from our community about how to use our tools to build better DFS lineups. So if you have questions you'd like me to answer on this show, uh, you can post them live in the YouTube chat. You can ask them in our Office Hours channel, in our Slack community, for which there's a link to join that community in the description of every past show. Uh, you can also email us, support at sabersim.com. Uh, all kinds of different ways to get your questions answered here. We have a few questions here uh, for today's show. Uh, I did have a pretty decent night last night uh, of DFS. So uh, one thing I thought we could do here is walk through. Actually, I didn't think this. Uh, we had a question here from, uh, let's see, from Frankie, who asked uh, if I could go through and walk through the build I used here to build this lineup. Um I'd be happy to do that. I think that's a good idea. So we'll do that here a little bit. But we have some other questions as well. Uh, looks like a couple questions about research builds here. Um, some exposures, some uh, different entry editor type questions. So all kinds of different things to look at here. But I think this is a good place to start. So uh, first of all, thank you everybody for the congrats. It was uh, it was needed. I'm going to be honest. It's It's been a little bit of a slower baseball season for me here uh, this season. So it was nice. Um, I'll show the lineup here as well. But first of all, uh, Frankie said, hey, Jordan, would love to see you revisit your build from last night's 25 max beanball uh, and show the ways you added value if possible. Congrats on the win. Yeah. So um, here's the lineup. Uh, it was a 4-2-2 with Charlie Morton. So uh, Braves 4 with Olsen, Riley, uh, Grossman, and Acuna here. Um, the 2% Grossman definitely helped as well. And then uh, two stacks that were basically, you know, I, I can explain the lineup now. I don't want to give the impression that I like hand-built this lineup, but they were two stacks leveraging against two of the other chalkier pitchers, right? So two Detroit Tigers here, uh, Baez and Kerry Carpenter, right? Leveraging directly against uh, Zach Plesak. Um, and then... Uh, Jordan Alvarez and uh, Mauricio Dubon here as another two stack against Dylan Cease. Um, so two pitchers there. Um, good overall lineup. Again, I, I did. It's not like I hand built this. We'll see in a second. This was just a lineup from my pool. Um, also very lucky. I know there was a discussion we were talking about in the Slack channels earlier today here um, about uh unique fill and unique random versus unique rank. It is worth noting here that this was uh, not my highest saber score lineup in my pool um it was my highest scoring lineup i played last night and it was uh pretty fortunate i think that um that this lineup landed at where it where it did but let's go ahead let's let's hop over to the build here and we'll change the view a little bit so you guys can see this um i think honestly uh a, a bit probably surprising to say here that i I didn't actually really do that much here. Um, one thing I think people will probably notice here, um, I just want to address it right off the bat. This is this pool size does say 5,000. Uh, I am, this build was done as a part of kind of a QA test uh, on our upcoming change to increase the size of the pool. Um, the lineup that ultimately ended up winning before anybody, uh, before I get any conspiracy theorists here uh, in the chat, the lineup that ended up winning here was a part was within the first 1500. Uh, so it would have been built even within that first 1500. Um, so want to address that there. But uh, anyway, 
So let's talk about this. So build on default settings, right? Uh, it's a 331 lineup portfolio. Uh, the entries here that were used um, were uh, basically like a kind of typical mix of contests that you would play if you were playing around, I think I entered around $130 worth of entries last night on FanDuel, right? A, a solid mix of diversifiers and elevators. I used the unique random fill. Uh, I built all 331 of my lineups all together in one build. And because of how big some of these contests are, I decided to use the 150 max 10 to 50K entries as kind of that midpoint slider set that I talk about a lot here on the show, right? Building everything together, handling everything all at once. Um, and, and that's how I, how I handled it there. So I'll start kind of talking about, I think it's also worth noting, I didn't really do anything ahead of time. There's not really any projection updates or anything that was added to the build beforehand. In fact, I was actually running pretty short on time just in general when I ran this build. So kind of left things as default settings uh, and then made a few adjustments from there. So I'll kind of start talking about some of these adjustments. The first thing I looked at and the first thing I often look at here in these builds was the stack types. Um, I was getting... Uh, a lot of the kind of stack types that you would want four threes and and some four fours and four twos and things like that. You see the four two two obviously is the stack type that ended up winning here. Um, but I was also getting some three stacks, so I did go through here and eliminated those three stacks. Um, I also yeah I think I had a handful of three three twos three threes three two twos etc. In here um, again I, I've talked about this on stream a lot as well. I think there's some value especially on a site like Fanduel uh, to potentially um, Playing some of those types of, of roster constructions, you can see there's you know 11% of the lineups in the pool are 3-3-2 stacks. Um, I've still, especially on big 13-game slates, been leaning more into the side of um, playing bigger stacks where I can. So I want those four stacks when I can get them. So I limited my pool in that way. Uh, the next thing I did is I wanted to take a look at my batter uh, exposures. Um, and specifically what I actually did here, let me make some of this stuff a little bit smaller so you guys can actually see this here on screen. Um, let's make some of these columns a little bit smaller. Oops. It's not what I meant to do. Okay. So you can actually see what I did here. So what I did uh, is I, I mentioned yesterday, been using this pool column a lot. I wanted to see, you know, what is the most likely to be viable hitter might likely to be in the winning lineup hitter on the slate. And I talked yesterday on stream, even live when we were going through this and mentioned it was a pretty spread out slate. I thought there were a lot of different ways to tackle the slate. Uh, there were a lot of different ways to, to play a lot of different stacks. And you can see that reflected here, right? The most likely to be optimal player in the pool uh, was Rafael Devers at 21.3%. Um, when I was when I originally ran this build, I was getting a lot of exposure to Boston, right? So one of the things that I wanted to do is I wanted to say, I have 330, 31 unique lineups here. I have a ton of lineups, right? So even capping somebody at 20% um, exposure, right, still gives me 66 unique lineups of that player. So I was pretty aggressive with my risk tolerance on hitters last night. Uh, I had the intention of setting exposure limits to all my hitters to about 20%, right? I wanted to get pretty spread out. I, I just didn't feel like there was any one spot that uh, even from an ownership standpoint, right? There wasn't a lot of, there wasn't really any one spot that was like extremely highly owned either. I didn't really feel like I needed to get a ton of positive leverage on any team. So I capped my exposures at around 20% for most of my hitters. Um, and that's mostly a risk tolerance thing as somewhat strategic where I was thinking, you know, Hey, I want to get some exposure here. Um, I'm going to put this at 20%. I missed a couple here in the form of Alonzo, uh, and Alvarez. Um, but that was kind of my main thing I was doing there. Right. 
And that's just risk tolerance. Again, that's that's basically something I kind of blindly applied to a bunch of different players in my pool. Um, I'm going to hop over quickly to the, well, actually, no, let's talk about next. So the next thing I did is I was looking for maybe particular situations where I wanted to get a little bit of leverage, uh, where I thought there was an opportunity to play a little bit exploitatively. And what I was really looking for is I was looking for players in my pool here uh, that I was, uh, I would, Players in my pool that I thought had some upside, that had a high probability of success, um, that also I thought were going to be pretty low owned. And obviously, when you sort by pool, you can see, you know, clearly we thought there was an edge on Boston last night, right? And I was pretty happy with the the exposure I was getting there. Uh, one name that popped out pretty high was Jordan Alvarez, and I thought this was a player that was the field was going to overlook, right? I thought he was going to be underappreciated. He had a tough matchup. I think our ownership projection of 9.4 was a little bit inflated just because of how Saberson thought he should be owned. But I thought given the matchup of against Dylan Cease, uh, given all the other opportunities to go to tonight, I didn't think he was going to be that popular. Uh, so I set a minimum exposure to make sure I was getting some Jordan Alvarez here and just set it about equal to what I had in my pool, right? I had 16%, basically the pool saying about 16% of like viable strong lineups for these contests have Jordan Alvarez in it. And I basically said, I want at least that amount, 16% here, right? So I got a little bit of extra exposure there. Uh, it actually took me to about 21% Jordan Alvarez here in this case, but uh, that was one other thing I put in here. Um, on the pitching side, I had I had a, a few things I adjusted here as well. Um, I had a similar kind of way I was thinking about this uh, with my pitchers. What's funny, my most exposed pitcher was Zach Plesak. Right. Uh, but I wasn't incredibly, you know, very highly exposed to any one pitcher. Uh, there were there were a couple of things that I was looking at on the pitching side. So, first of all, similar to the hitting, I actually thought there were a lot of good pitching op options. Right. I liked the high end. I liked Robbie Ray, Charlie Morton, Justin Verlander. Um, I liked some of the mid range guys like clearly Plesak, Pavetta, uh, Quintana, Sonny Gray. Right. Uh, Brandon Woodruff, who I didn't even mention. Right. I, I, and I actually even mentioned Alec Manoa or Nestor Cortez. Right. There were just like a lot of good pitchers on the slate last night. Uh, so what I was also kind of looking at doing here is uh, managing risk a little bit and then also taking just a couple stands. And, and my stands really were on Robbie Ray and Justin Verlander. Uh, first of all, looking at this ownership projection, I expected that this was basically about the minimum I could see him being owned on this slate. Uh, I think Robbie Ray was getting touted a lot yesterday. I think a lot of people were saying his name. Uh, I think on FanDuel single pitcher site, sometimes the Sabres and projections will assume that the field will spread out a little bit more than I think they actually do. And I expected this number to be the minimum ownership I would expect Robbie Ray would see. And since we had about exactly that amount in our pool, I just thought, hey, you know what? I'm going to basically just use that as an opportunity to just say, I'm going to at best match basically the optimal rate or or the percentage of times Robbie Ray is in, in, a, in a winning lineup or a good lineup for this particular contest type and capped him about 20%. Uh, Justin Verlander, on the other side, on the other hand, I also thought could be a come in a little bit higher owned than we were projecting here, just on name value alone. He's also the most expensive pitcher, which I think makes him a little bit more popular. Um, and we were already under on his pool exposure here. So that was another guy I said, give me at best 8% match my pool um, on, on Verlander here. Uh, and I'm going to try to find that as an opportunity to exploit. All right. Um, that's all I really touched on for, for the pitchers there. So a couple of adjustments there. I was naturally getting pretty spread out otherwise there. Uh, I actually liked being, what's funny, again, I had that Tiger stack. We'll talk about that here in a second. Uh, I actually kind of liked being on Plesak here a little bit uh, on this um, on this slate just because I, I thought 
with all of the good higher salary guys, I thought he was going to go a little bit overlooked. So I had 31, I had 31% please sack. Um, but anyway, last thing I adjusted were my team stacks. Uh, and really I'm going to be completely honest. I, I was running out of time here and I basically just decided to do a few things that I got kind of lucky on, uh, that I really, I don't have a very great reason to explain why I did it. Um, the first and the one that ultimately, well, actually really all of these things were, were the same. I basically took a couple light stands on a few of these stacks against some chalky pitchers that I thought maybe I had a reason to fade, right? Um, I'm always a little bit hesitant of a well-projected pitcher who I don't think is a very high quality pitcher against a bad team. Right. So I liked Plesak. I thought he was going to be a little bit low owned, but I always kind of think there is an opportunity to at least get a little bit blown up there. And I asked myself, is it is it possible? Does does fading does fading Plesak or even hedging there a little bit make sense in the build? And I went to go look at my Detroit Tiger stacks. And originally I had zero percent Tiger showing up in my 331 lineups. But in my pool, I had seven and a half percent Tiger stacks. And when I sorted by pool exposure. I looked at this and I thought, you know, honestly, the Detroit Tigers are actually a pretty playable stack here tonight. And again, I don't think they're going to get any ownership, even if Plesak also goes a little low owned on FanDuel. I just don't think people are going to go there. So I said, let's match my pool size on Tiger stacks. And that was ultimately the big thing among all of these other changes. That was ultimately the big thing that that really kind of got me there, right, was that that move. Um, sometimes you're just Sometimes you get a little lucky with that kind of stuff. Um, but that's kind of what got me there. I checked for a couple other teams as well. So like you can see, for example, so the White Sox, right? I could have said the same thing for the White Sox who are down here at the bottom. Let me make this a little bit easier to see. So the White Sox. So I had the same thought about Verlander. But when I checked on the White Sox, there's only 0.9% of my lineups in my entire pool that had a White Sox stack in it. So I didn't really bother trying to get any more exposure there. And I went through and looked for a couple other teams. Um, the other teams that it looked like had a good combination of fading a pitcher that I thought maybe was going to be popular and I kind of wanted to leverage against and also some exposure in my pool. So one of those was the Rays, right? I've been playing Rays most of this week just because I think when pitchers get chalky in Yankee Yankee Stadium, it makes me a little bit interested in the other side just because that's it's a pretty good hitting park. Um, same deal there, right? I noticed we have about 5% of our exposure in the pool was Tampa Bay stacks. So I said, get me some Tampa Bay stacks. Uh, and then I did the same thing on the Angels down here. Um, I actually doubled this, right? Because I thought, again, I thought that Ray was probably the best, not necessarily the best fade on the slate, but probably the the pitcher that you stand to gain the most positive leverage against if he fails. So we have two and a half percent exposure to uh, angel stacks here in the pool. I actually made sure I got 6% angel stacks in my exposures here uh, as well. So um, that is pretty much it. I guess, again, to kind of sum up basically the steps I was taking. First thing I did uh, is I went in and checked on my stack types Um Right. I wanted to make sure I got I was getting the stack types I wanted. I set max exposures of zero to a couple different stack types that I just didn't want to play last night because the slate was so big. Uh, then I went in and mostly from a risk tolerance standpoint, I was adjusting my min and max exposures for hitters. Um, I observed based on the pool exposures of these different hitters that it was a slate that I thought justified getting spread out. So I set pretty low max exposures here. Um, and then I leveraged against a couple situations where I just thought, Maybe there was a little bit of an opportunity to get creative, get unique. One was uh, bumping up Alvarez here. Um, and that that also led me to getting some more Houston stacks too. That would have been something else. Like I, I, 
I think what what is worth noting here is is what I what is worth noting here is the things that I observed that I felt like didn't need to be changed, right? Like one of those was Houston became my fourth most popular stack on the slate. Um, I wanted some Houston, right? I was kind of low on cease in general. Bumping up Alvarez was enough for me to get there, um, but bumped up some, uh, got to some Houston stacks, did the same thing with pitchers, right? Took a couple stands. Again, a slate where I thought ownership was... Um, going to condense even a little bit more than our ownership projections would imply. And there were a couple opportunities to take some stands there. And then finally, you know, checking on my pool exposure as a way to judge viability of a stand, right. To determine a few opportunities to just get some leverage on some of these popular pitchers, right. White Sox, not the best opportunity to get leverage. Detroit, probably maybe one of the best leverage opportunities on the slate, just judging by pool exposure alone. That's kind of what I did. And then I filled, uh, I did a unique random fill. I got my lineups in seconds before lock, uh, which was pretty lucky. Uh, and that is, is what I did. And the, the winning lineup here, um, is, uh, you guys will see, uh, it's actually a ways down here. And this is how I knew that my updates caused this lineup to be in my pool, which is somewhat satisfying here. Um, it is lineup like 940 something. Let me pull this down a little further. Uh, let's see. Oh, nine. This is the one right there. Line up 934. Um, scored 205.2. Um, so again, a lineup that basically showed up probably because of some combination of me saying I wanted at least a minimum amount of tiger stacks. And also that, you know, I only wanted 20% max of any one pitcher. Um, got me there. So a lot of things about this were luck. Um, the getting Morton in this lineup was pretty lucky. Uh, getting uh, Braves in this lineup and the right Braves in this lineup was pretty lucky. Uh, the two things that I felt like I kind of like did here uh, that helped me arrive at this lineup was basically saying I wanted to go out and get some Jordan Alvarez, who ended up only scoring six points, um, but also wanting to make sure I wanted to go out and get some Tiger stacks. Um, and I think another thing worth noting here is that, you know, I'm often not really, I'm not super opinionated on what kind, what ways I get the stacks of the teams that I want to go get, right? When I identified that the Tigers were an opportunity to go get that particular team, you know, I got a two stack in this particular lineup. Um, I, I didn't need to say, Hey, I want to make sure I'm getting five stacks, right? I said, Saberson, you tell me the best way to go get those tiger stacks. And, and in this case, it was a two stack, um, and I will just kind of say what I, I want there. So um, no research build here. I think some of my uh, office hours regulars might be a little bit surprised to see that. I, I have been, you know, um, I, I didn't run a research build last night. Again, I was a little bit shorter on time. You, part of the main reason that I have been running them a little bit less and less, and I talked about this on stream as well today, is that I think the stack pool exposure is is really kind of helping to do a lot of what I needed the research build to do in the first place. And that was basically to give me a number that approximates how likely is this player to end up in the winning lineup or how likely is this construction to end up in the winning lineup. Uh, and now that I have that here, I don't know. I've been a little bit more on the side of of just running kind of a final build um, and doing a little bit more, more there. Um, so not to say that there's anything wrong with with the research build, I still, I ran them for MMA last week. Um, I ran some earlier in the week just to get familiarized with the slate, but I've, I felt like a little bit slightly what was once like a must have mandatory part of my process every single night has been a little bit simplified, which is a good thing. So, 
Uh, okay, cool. So hopefully that was helpful. If anybody has any questions about, like, about that lineup or about how, like, like, you know, some of the changes I made there, um, tried to kind of walk through my, my, um, my process there as best as possible. But I, I mean, again, I, I think like, you know, no surprises here, right? Or I would hope not. De like default settings, you know, especially for the 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 slider heads out there. I I the 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 proof is not in the or it's not it's not the magic sliders, right? Default sliders here um, didn't make a ton of changes overall. Managed risk and took a couple stands that I thought were maybe some good opportunities. So, um, for what it is worth, I did this exact same thing on the early slate today, and I'm getting absolutely crushed. Right. So it's not, uh, it's not one size fits all. Um, I ended up on a ton of reds. That's not working so good. So, um, anyway, let's, uh, let's go ahead and keep answering some questions. Um, I'm going to just back up and we'll just start knocking out questions in the order that they came in. So this one came in yesterday afternoon from chicken tendies here. And he said, I just watched an old office hours, uh, about how Sabersim has a unique way to project ownership. I'm not sure for other sports, but it seems like in NFL ownership usually condenses towards the higher value player. Uh, would it be advantageous to have those smaller contests weigh value more? Uh, you made a great point where it's tough to predict ownership when you have so many different types of players in the contest. Um, so I think I kind of get what you're saying. Yeah. So I would say as contests get smaller, I think it is a fair assumption that the, the chalkier plays, which are also likely to lean more into the good point per dollar plays. I think those players are going to be more chalky, the smaller the contest, right? So our ownership projections, and let's go ahead here real quick. Um, I'm going to actually go ahead and move over back to my, my other account here. Um, and we'll, uh, We'll pull up the slate for today and, and kind of talk about this question in a little bit more detail. Um, just a second here. Okay, let's get this back up. Okay. So we'll pull up the slate. These split slate days are the best. I love it. Six games early, nine games late. It's like the the dream, uh, the dream baseball day. Um, anyway. Okay. So yeah, so I do think it's a, like fair in general to assume that the chalkiest players are going to get more chalky, the smaller the contest gets. So these, these ownership projections on all of our, on all of our different sports and things like that are always for a large field GPP, right? This is for like the flagship or the mini max is a good way of thinking of it. I think it's very safe to say, for example, that, uh, Rodon and Scherzer in a you know smaller field, single entry might be 65 and 55% owned instead of 55 and 45% owned. And that's true for NFL as well. Um, uh, there's a couple of reasons for that. You know, as contests get smaller and people have less entries to work with, they play safer for better or worse, right? Um, they will pick players that are perceived to be safer. There's also as contests get smaller and especially as you start to get down to like single entry contests and things like that, uh, you just have more lineups in those contests that are just people literally playing their cash lineup. Um, there's, there's a lot of FOMO with people that play cash, right? You don't want to play, people feel like they don't want to play a cash lineup that scores a ton of points one day, um, and thinks, uh, without realizing that those lineups are actually negative EV. And even if like, there's a lot of negative EV games you can play out there with the opportunity to one day just win, right? The lottery is a good example, right? Playing a cash lineup in a GPP contest is akin to playing the lottery where you're taking a negative EV decision just because you could win, right? Those are, those are, this that basically makes those contests softer that increases the uh exposure or that increases the ownership of the the highest owned plays a little bit more so um yes i would agree with you there um okay uh so rogue has a couple questions about 
uh, research builds here. Let's get to these. Uh, he said, if you are playing satellite competitions, building those milli tickets <laughs> with the smiling imp emoji, does the research build process still apply in the same uh, fashion as a normal GPP? And are there any nuances a newer player should be aware of? Okay, so we'll talk about that one first. Yeah, so I think it still works. I would say that I, I don't know if there's like nuance, um, but basically since you need... Like, I actually think a research build would do better in that kind of contest, right? Because you, well, okay, I guess it kind of depends on a couple things. It depends, one, on how small that, how big that, or small that contest is. Like, if you're playing really small satellites, then maybe you don't need this as much. Um, if you're playing, like, larger satellites, you you basically need, like, the optimal to, or the, definitely not the true optimal, but you need to come in first to win anything, right? Like you need to have a very high percentile finishing outcome. Uh, I think the research build can work pretty well for that. I would say in, in, especially for baseball satellite contests, I would not be afraid to take a like pretty, pretty significant stance, right? Like if your research build is saying something to you and you're like, eh, I don't know, like, I, like maybe that's a good fade, but they're still kind of a well-projected team, right? I, I would embrace those stands more heavily as you're playing as you're playing these satellites. Now, in practice, like for me, I'm I'm not playing satellites right now. I've incorporated them into my pro, into my contest selection mix here and there, um, on and off. For me, in practice, I ultimately just end up throwing in some of my random lineups that I used to play GPPs into my satellites. I think they are close enough that there's not a, a massive difference between those two. So, like. But for me, right, like looking at this, you know, if I was serious about trying to take down some satellite contests, I would, I would be pretty aggressive uh, with with what I interpreted off my research build, right? Like, um, and and really look for some opportunities to get to get some leverage. So I would probably, you know, I'd probably be proceeding with caution with Rodon in particular. Um, a little bit of of. Uh, carefulness with Scherzer, I would probably almost certainly not play them both together if I was playing like this and really being intentional about it. I would, you know, think opportunities like Tony Gonsolin would be like really great opportunities to get a ton of leverage on the field in those contests. Um, I think it would be very difficult for me to imagine myself playing a Texas, New York, Boston, Houston, maybe even Dodger stack in those contests. And I would probably be pretty interested in playing um, I'm trying to see, you know, maybe St. Louis, Atlanta, San Francisco instead. So just cause it's basically just like a super top heavy GPP. So, and then second question, uh, when doing a research build for a smaller slate, three to five games, should you leave, allow batters against opposing pitchers enabled or disabled? I got pretty different results yesterday. I wasn't sure what to follow. Thanks. Interesting. I'm a little bit surprised that you were getting pretty different results. I would say, you know, if you're being technically correct about what you're trying to do with your research build, turning this on uh, is probably the right idea. And I want to be very, very explicitly clear to everybody listening here. What I am talking about here is a build used purely for research, right? where you basically build 1500 lineups at 0010 settings and just look and see what are the raw sims giving you, right? What are the raw sim optimals from a single game simulation? These are not lineups that I'm intending to enter into a contest. This is called a research build because it's purely for research. So please don't suddenly start going and turning your allow batters versus opposing pitcher toggle on because you heard me say it in the show, right? I'm, I'm, this is purely for research, but for Rogue here for your question, yes, I think especially on smaller slates, I think it is technically correct to turn this toggle on um, in, as a as a portion as a part of your research build for the same reason why like 
turning min salary to zero is also a good idea just because you don't want you don't want arbitrary restrictions on your research build when when you're purely just trying to do research on the slate so um cool okay so yeah we hit that question from frankie about reviewing the last build here um a couple questions from nipsey here i see some questions coming in in youtube chat as well uh we will uh, get to those in a moment. I'm gonna keep. I'm gonna keep knocking out the questions in Slack first. We're almost done there. Uh, Nipsey said, "When I change my team exposures post build and keep getting the warning to send my new exposures home, am I constricting the sims too much? Uh, there are times when I run my 1500 with new exposures that it can't complete the entire build. Yeah, I mean, I would say if you're putting, if you're sending enough exposures back to the home screen, that when you try to run a new build, it's not even getting to 1500." I would say that you're probably over restricting the builder, right? Something about the combinations of different exposures you've requested uh, are putting too much salary and positional and other constraints like that. And it's really struggling to find lineups. The lineups it's finding might not be very good ones. So I do think that's a little bit of a sign uh, that you are, are over constraining. Um, one thing that you can also do to help that is like, if you are taking stands, right? So like maybe you run your build and you find that you're getting a ton of Texas right? And you're like, man, I really don't want to play a ton of Texas. So you go and send your exposures back to the home screen and try to rerun. Like another thing that will kind of help that would also be to adjust the projections, right? You can knock, you can knock Texas down like a full run and that will probably help get you a lot less Texas. Um, so, you know, if you, if you are sending your exposures back to the home screen, I think sometimes it's not a bad idea to also consider adjusting the projections to match a little bit more what your exposures say. Um, I do think, you know, speaking more broadly here, it is it is also a good opportunity to check your anytime you get the message saying, "Hey, we can't find lineups that are that do what you want them to do." Uh, I do think it's always a good opportunity to kind of check yourself, right? Like, let's say you're building for tonight's slate, so you have your fifteen hundred lineups, right? And you're doing this, um, and you're building your lineups. If you set your exposures in such a way that it can't find lineups there. That's not necessarily to say that your angle is wrong by any means, right? That's not the point. But it is a useful data point to you that in the first 1,500 lineups that we think are appropriate for that contest that you're playing, that we can't find 20 or 150 or however many you need that match those requests, right? Like it's a, It should be an opportunity to check in. And I would, if I felt very strongly about something, you know, you can almost kind of think about this from like a Bayesian principle. If I felt very strongly about something about a stance I wanted to take before I even touched my lineups, before I built my lineups. And then after I built my lineups, I found that to, to do that angle, to fit that angle, I had to exceed the first 1500 lineups. I had to like rebuild new lineups with my custom exposures. To me, that would, I wouldn't, I would be less confident about that stance, not necessarily saying that that stance is hundred percent wrong, not necessarily saying you can't play that way or anything like that. But I think it, it should be an opportunity for you where you raise a red flag and say, let me go back to my research and double check and make sure that I feel confident about this stand because it's not showing up in the build, at least the first one. And if you still feel confident about it, send those exposures back home, go back to your projections tab, uh, maybe make a couple updates to some projections to better align with what you're trying to do at all, uh, and then rebuild. And I think you'll find that that should work a little bit better. Um, so... I mean, the one other thing too is like, remember that uh, it's very, it's, it's pretty hard for like a human to sit and look at the slate and figure out where, like what is mathematically possible. 
you may go in and set exposures that are actually just mathematically very difficult to do, right? Like if you've set min exposures to the four highest per, highest dollar pitchers and the four most expensive stacks, and you're saying you want a ton of all those guys, that's, that's hard to do, right? There's not enough money to go around, right? Or if you've set min exposures uh, to four different teams whose best players all play the outfield on stacks, that's hard to build, right? So... Just be aware of that kind of stuff. Um, and then anyway, uh, the other question from Nipsey here um, says, during the autofill process, for example, I run a thousand lineups. Do I have to set the exact amount of lineups I need? Once I upload my CSV, it will know how many entries I have. Can I set it to pull from my pool of a thousand instead of a lax exactly 1500? Uh, you can. I don't think I would recommend it personally, right? Because I do think Saber score does provide some value, but you can. Um, so, you know, if we were to fill using this lineup set, right, this number up here says 150, which means no matter what, all of the lineups in our pool will come from this 150, right? That will come from here. If you wanted to just randomly pull from your pool, full pool of 1500, uh, you can do that by setting this to 1500. The problem, though, is that all of a sudden you're going to, like, you're you're potentially going to pull from a worse lineup when you don't need to, right? That's kind of the right way of thinking about it. Like all else being equal, assuming you've got all of your exposures and everything set up the way you want, there's I don't think there's any good reason why you would want to pull from a lineup with a 75 Sabre score instead of a 95 Sabre score. All else being equal, right? Assuming that otherwise everything, you've got everything else the way you want it. If you're now, if you're adjusting your exposures and managing risk and doing other things like that, and you end up with a lineup that has a 75 saber score in your pool of 150, I think that's fine. But all else being equal, I don't think there's a good reason to just arbitrarily pull from your pool of 1500 instead of your actual 150 set. But if you want to, you can. And you would do that again by changing your, your number of lineups to match whatever your pool size is, uh, and filling from that lineup set instead. Uh, the one other thing to note is that, um, that like just on, that might actually take a while to do because it's like when you actually save that lineup set, it's, it's like, so for me, it was pretty fast, but up against lock or maybe on like a super big slate, saving a 1500 lineup set sometimes can take a little bit of time. So just be aware of that as well. I would hate for you to like have an issue right up against lock because you're trying to save a set of 1500 lineups when you're trying to just fill like a lineup file of, you know, 35 lineups or something like that. So, um, something else to look, look for there. Um, cool. Uh, good question from Steven here, uh, and a relevant one. Um, and he said, what is stack pool exposure? Yeah. So what this, what this column is, is it is the percentage of lineups in your entire pool here. Actually, this is a good example. It is the percentage of lineups in your entire pool that have that stack, right? So when we're talking about this, right, it's saying 29% of our entire pool of 1500 have a Dodger stack in it, right? So right now, because our, our number of lineups, because our lineup set is 1500, our stack exposure matches this exactly. But you can see here, as this gets smaller and we start sorting by Sabre score, you can see how it changes, right? Now, in our top 150, only 4% of our lineups have a Dodger stack in it, right? And why is that? Probably because, because of the way, because of the ownership of the Dodgers, right? 
They are a chalkier team here on tonight's slate, a relatively chalkier team. Uh, Saberson is favoring to use other teams in your stacks in your final 150, even though they are in 30% of your lineups in the pool, right? Oh, I realize you guys are kind of kind of can't see that. Sorry, here. Mm, there you go. Now you should be able to, right? So it is, this is how many, this is the exposure of that stack or whatever in your lineup set that you're currently viewing. This is the percentage of your lineups in your entire pool that have that player in it. So. Cool. And again, a, a thank you to uh, the congratulations here um, in, in Slack. And Toasted Taters, I did not wear the Bink Guy shirt. Uh, Bink Guy shirt was dirty, unfortunately, but it would have been a good day for it. So, uh, okay, hopping over to YouTube chat. Uh, Canon, Canon, I'll be completely honest. I've been playing DFS for about a year. Not too great, unfortunately. A little too hard to follow, but I'm trying. I also only play on DK. Yeah, I mean, it, it uh, you know, it takes time. Um, it, it, uh. It's a bit of a grind, to be completely honest. I think people find DFS and they get introduced to DFS. And uh, especially if you are introduced by seeing $100,000 winning screenshots on Twitter and things like that, uh, that you can get the impression that it's it's a, it's a bit of a money printer. And I think the expectations of what your positive ROI will look like and uh, how quickly you will realize that ROI can sometimes be a little bit higher. Um, I would say my best advice to you um, would be to focus on the fundamentals. And what those fundamentals would be to me uh, would be one, just being very, very solid with your contest selection principles. So if you haven't seen this video, this is our DFS profit plan video. It walks through, it's 17 minutes long, but it walks through in detail what contests we think you should play and why. Uh, I highly recommend watching that because you will you will seriously immediately improve the quality of your lineups uh, purely based on or not the quality of your lineups, you will improve the ROI and the expected value of your lineups by playing them into better contests. Um, so I would highly recommend that. I also think one fundamental is you have to have an understanding of how to late swap your lineups, assuming you're playing a sport where you can late swap. Uh, tennis, MMA, sports like that, you can't. But if you're playing baseball, watch this video as well. And make sure, you know, th this, is, this is a core fundamental that you understand how to change your lineups after lock in the event that a player gets ruled out or something comes up. It's not a huge factor in baseball compared to basketball or something like that, but it's an important factor. Uh, and then from there, I would get familiarized with, with the idea of risk and risk tolerance, right? Especially a Sabersim, I think, makes this very easily, but you know, very easy. But if you are playing $50, 50 lineups, right? You're following the profit plan, you're playing exactly 50 lineups. Understand, understand the risk associated versus the upside of, of exposure, right? And I think, you know, looking at things like how many, how many lineups in the how many lineups in your contest are expected to roster a player, how many lineups in, in your entire pool have a certain player in it and how many lineups using those two pieces of information, how many lineups do you want to have with that player in it? Right. Um, and managing risk according to what you are comfortable with, right? Like two ways, two thought experiments that I think are super helpful to kind of put this into better terms. Right. So thought experiment one is how comfortable are you having 92% of your lineups go down the drain with one player, right? If Rodon so happens to get lit up and have a bad game, right? 
The other thought experiment is, let's say you say, oh, no, I don't want that. That sounds bad. And you cap this and say, I'm going to match the field or roughly equal to my pool size, right? The the other side of this is how comfortable would you be having Rodon go off, right? Have a great game and know that you end up just having an average night purely because you are just even with the field on that particular player, right? Those are the kinds of things you should be thinking about on, on these individual risk tolerance kinds of questions. Um, and as I'm talking about this, I'm realizing that risk tolerance is less of a fundamental than I thought. So if I lost you, focused on contest selection and being prepared to late swap first and then come back to this because I think this actually is maybe a little bit less of a fundamental than I thought, but I think it's an important thing to think about. And those things, you should have those kinds of things down. There's other things I could talk about here uh, for, for somebody just getting new to DFS or just new to MLB DFS. But I think once you have those things down, your contest selection game is tight. You know how to late swap. You know how to use your tools and you know when to late swap. Uh, and you also have a sense of your own personal risk tolerance. Then you can start focusing more on strategy, right? But you really shouldn't be thinking about like what players am I playing or what stands am I making or strategically what am I doing until you understand those concepts because they're they're you need to know what contest you're playing and why. You need to know how to react to basically like emergency late breaking news. And you need to set up your exposures and risk in a way that you are comfortable with night after night. So um, anyway, uh, Patrick says, is there a different approach that we should take going into the BMW tourney this week? Uh, it's a no cut tourney. Yeah, these are tough. Um, I don't really like the no cut events. Um, I think they're even harder. I think they're even harder to play than the cut events, right? Um, when you have that big... The nice thing about a cut is it introduces significant downside. And I think downside is important when you're determining what players are bad chalk or good chalk, right? Like if I'm going to take a stand, especially especially on cheaper guys, right? I always like to fade like these cheaper guys. Um, and if I'm going to take a stand on, God, I guess there's not a lot of cheap chalk this week, uh, but maybe I'm taking a stand on Cam Young, 8,900, right? Um, who looks like we think is going to be pretty chalky. Right. I want to know that he's going to have like potential real downside. And if you get to play all four rounds, it's harder to get there. Um, plus, it's just a smaller field this week. It's just harder to get different. Um, I. Okay. I think what I would probably do, I don't know if I'm going to play this week. I haven't decided. I, I was thinking about sitting this one out. But if, if I were to play, I think what I would probably try to do is think about it less as trying to leverage inefficient ownership and more about trying to just build lineups where my exposure is about match optimal rates and get really spread out and try to kind of win by just naturally getting some exposure to players that are the the players that have a low chance of being in the optimal lineup are probably going to be just a little bit inefficiently underowned um that I think when you get your natural exposure to them to match their percent chance of being in the optimal, you will you will find some leverage there. But I think, uh, just being completely honest, uh, I think no-cut events in golf for main slates are tough to get an edge. Um, is there weather this week? I guess that would be one other question I have. If there's weather this week, maybe there's a correlative weather edge. Um, let's see. Is there... Um, I normally like to look at data golf here um they have this up here so there's a half not really half point 
for a, a half point less valuable to start in the morning wave than the afternoon wave. Um, so not a huge weather edge. Yeah, I think it's tough. I would probably I would probably spread out aggressively on my exposures. I would also probably play less bankroll, to be honest. I would probably, um, I, think, I think the edges are smaller on a week like this. So I would probably play less bankroll. And what's funny is I know this is a popular event, the BMW champion, like there's a 444 millimaker. Um, it's not like, it's kind of like in terms of golf DFS in general, right? The four majors, huge weeks, a lot of fun. Great. Then you have the players, which basically I think kind of operates as a bit of a major, um, big contests feels kind of majory. And then the BMW championship is also a really big week. I know in golf and, uh, it's a popular golf DFS week, but I don't really like it. Cause I don't like make cut of it. I don't like no cut of it. So it's tough, but uh, Patrick said, I wonder what's your heart beats per minute when you're trying to enter lineups very close to lock, especially when you're making adjustments on the fly. Yeah, that'd be interesting. That'd be kind of fun. I feel like I need like a heart rate monitor or something like that. I think last night it was pretty high. I was, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I played DraftKings and Vandal last night and I was close. I cut it really close. So I'm glad based on how things worked out. Fortunately, I did Fanduel first. So Fanduel was never really at that much risk, but DraftKings, DraftKings cut it, cut it close. Um, there's also, you know, there's a, there's some interesting articles out there of people that have like tracked caloric burn and heart rates for, uh, for chess tournament players. Um, and the, the like heart rate and the overall calories burned uh, of people like sitting down to play chess for six or eight hours is like as high as those, uh, you know, going through some kind of cardio, right? Like running or something like that, or at least jogging, um, which I've always found interesting. Um, and I, I, I'm curious, um, maybe like if you are channeling your, your most powerful galaxy brain DFS strategy as hard as you can the last, uh, 15 minutes before lock with the time pressure, maybe you're, you get up to having like a full blown cardio workout there, but probably not, <laughs> probably not, but maybe. Uh, Daniel said adjusting projections via ownership and optimal, any downfalls to look out for and any adjustments, uh, you would, you would run Saversim differently. Um, so, I mean, in terms of adjusting projections, um, so I, yeah, so a couple things I would look for. So the first of all is like, so let me read this again, adjusting projections via ownership and optimal rates, any downfall. So what I, what I'm hearing kind of here is that you're, you're, you're running maybe a research build or otherwise doing some, some ownership research and then adjusting projections based on that. Uh, I think that's fine. I've done a little bit of that before. I would, I would, here's what I would be cautious of. First of all, I would probably start with no more than a half run adjustment if you're doing team totals and no more than a 10% adjustment if you're looking at individual players. So if you think Rodon's ownership is inefficient and therefore you want to fade him on a projection level, I think that's fine. But what I would do is do no more than 10% of his projection. So uh, in that case, that's 2.3 less points. So 21, right? Uh, and what that does is that will basically make sure that you are not like going completely off the board, right? You're, you're almost kind of taking a gamble and saying, because that ownership feels a little high, I want to play the angle that his, he's slightly over projected and just kind of let that all shake out there. Um, if you were looking then at like the Braves and saying, I think the Braves are going under owned, right? I mean, they've had they've uh, had two pretty good nights in a row, right? Maybe they're just getting ignored again tonight. I would start that with a half run adjustment rather than going crazy on like a full run or anything like that, just because these changes can have big effects. Um, the other thing I would be careful of then is just, you know, proceed a little bit with caution with this ownership fade slider to avoid double counting. Um, 
When I've experimented with this in the past, I've actually just turned it off and I'll make a ton of these types of adjustments and then build without the ownership fade. Um, I would just, I, I, I would say experiment with the ownership fade slider, but be a little bit careful if you are making a ton of adjustments to projections already. Um, be careful that you are not double counting that ownership then in the ownership fade slider is the two things I would look for. Um, the, the one thing I, the one, so I'm, I haven't been doing this as much recently to be honest, but I was doing this a lot earlier this season. The one thing that I think is nice about these kinds of adjustments and turning the ownership fade slider down is that you have a little bit more hands-on control over where you think the ownership is inefficient. Um, but it is a little bit more time consuming. So, and I'm not sure that it long-term beats out just letting Sabersim handle some of this with the ownership fade slider and making adjustments on the post build, but yeah. Um, Cool. Uh, Tom said, uh, I noticed in playing golf, 20 max, 10, uh, 10,000 to 30,000 people after I optimize ownership, uh, and my lineups are so low, should I keep the ownership where it's at? Yeah. So I actually, I'm going to be completely honest. I've had the, I've had a similar experience with golf. Um, I have found that I prefer to turn the golf ownership slider down quite a bit. Uh, and in fact, there are a lot of slates where I just turn it down to zero. Um, and just build lineups that are like basically just optimals here, right? Um, and handle ownership myself, I guess. Basically, um, I I agree. I I think the I think the way that the ownership calculation works for golf, I think it over favors really low salary. Okay, I, I think it over favors really low salary golfers that are just lower projected, and you end up with builds that just have a lot of these lowly projected, lowly projected owned guys that they don't look or feel like good lineups. So like I prefer what I have found a lot of times is that, okay. So Tom says, so how would I do that to control the ownership? So, um, what I, what I like to do is I will build, I will build like this instead, turn that ownership fade slider down and then I'll build my lineups and we probably don't need a full 1500 here, but I will I will uh, either lower projections or exposure to players that I think are going to be very chalky in the post build screen. Um, so let's let this build and I'll, I'll kind of show you. I'll give a quick demo of what that. And, and what's nice about this is like, you're not in this case, you're not building with ownership adjusted lineups. You're building with single tournament simulation optimals. Um, so the lineup should just feel and look a lot better than they would with the ownership fade slider on. Um, so, so there's a couple of different ways you could do this. So let's just, let's assume that I'm playing 150 here. Cause I think it's a little bit easier to visualize. So, you know, one thing that you can do is I just like to look at some of the chalkiest guys and, you know, here's a good example, right? Um, well, actually here, let's see. Uh, okay. So Cam Young is, is a good example here, right? Where actually, wait, I'm getting confused. Let me, let me see. Let me do it this way. Okay. Actually let's do John Rahm. So projected to be the chalkiest golfer in the field right now, 33% owned, right? He's showing up in the pool 22 and a half, 22 and a half percent of the time, right? So basically in our Sims, he's in the optimal lineup about, uh, about 22% of the time. Well, we're, we're like actually getting pretty close to the field here, 
right? We're actually 28.7% is, is, you know, right in between these. Given that he's going to be what we think the chalkiest golfer, I would maybe prefer this number to be actually a little bit lower. So a couple of different ways you might do that. One thing I might do is just say, I only want 20% John Rahm, right? Uh, and maybe another example here, let's do, uh, let's do, let's do Rory as well and say, Max, I want 20% Rory, right? Now this isn't affecting the lineups, right? The lineups are already built, but this is bringing my entire exposure in my portfolio to these players down. And like, you can see, you know, this lineup right at the top is a John Rom lineup, like you get actually pretty diversified here automatically. You're not even diversified. You get like some pretty good lower on plays in here, even without the ownership fade slider. So maybe actually what I'm just saying is that I think the ownership fade slider is maybe a little bit too high in golf. Cause this is an event. This is an event where ownership is going to get pretty condensed. It's harder to get less. It's harder to get off the chalkiest plays. And you're seeing, we're still getting some pretty lower on builds. So, um, uh, that is what I would say is I, I would basically, so another, actually one other thing that you can do is if you're looking at just like the chalkiest players in the pool uh, is decreasing their projection a little bit here as well. So like maybe you're looking at this and thinking uh, Cam Young is another guy that looks like he's going to be inefficiently overowned, right? Maybe we bring down his projection here. And in this case, maybe we start with about 5%, 10% is a little intense for golf, but we could do 5% and knock him down four points here to about 80. And you can see that's bringing my, exposure in my lineups down to 9.3 from 14, right? Just by that. So I think that's another thing you can do. I just don't think the ownership fade slider works that well for golf personally. And like, I, I think you get pretty good looking lineups even without it. So. I would, yeah. So Tom says that earlier, my lineups didn't look too good. I would, uh, I would start First thing I would do is I would just experiment with turning that ownership fade slider down even to zero and seeing how you feel about those lineups instead. I think they'll look a little bit better. But you do want, I mean, first of all, like you do want your lineups to have some low owned plays, right? Like you don't want all the chalk. But I also agree that I it's a little bit of a red flag for me when I build my lineups and there's like three or four 1% owned guys in there. So uh, Eamon said, Air Jordan, what would happen if I did a research build with a unique of two? Uh, you would, I, I probably wouldn't, I mean, you, what you would end up with is you would, you would basically be saying you'd, you'd be putting kind of an arbitrary limit on the builder and saying, build me a 1500 sized sample of how the slate could play out and build the optimal lineup each time, but never have any lineup that has just one player different between them. Um, that probably won't happen a ton in your research builds anyway, just because that sim precision at 10 is so high that your diversity, your diversity is going to be very high to begin with, but it seems somewhat arbitrary. It doesn't seem like it would be anything that adds value to me. It would just like, it would be an arbitrary restriction on the builder. So, uh, restrictions on the builder in your research builds are not necessarily a bad thing if they accomplish some purpose, right? Like setting a stack rule on your research build can be is technically a restriction on the builder, but it can be a useful way to research stacks. I don't know what the purpose of using the min uniques in a research build would be. So Craig says, Jordan, if I upload a CSV file that has min and max exposures and projections after I run and build the lineups, do I need to sort by projected score to ensure I am getting my lineups that I want per my projections or exposures or sort to saver score? 
Um, the sort that you use to sort your final lineups is is kind of really, um, it's mostly up to you. And it's not, I would say it's not really related to whether or not you've uploaded custom projections or not. Uh, I think in general, it's always best to, um, hang on, let me quickly do this. I think especially in high correlation sports, it is always best to default to Sabre score. And the reason why, I actually think in general, it's always best to just default to Sabre score. The, the main reason why is that Sabre score incorporates all of the things that are important to be successful in GPPs, like correlation and ownership and raw scoring upside. Whereas projected score is just like, it's just the average, right? It's just the highest scoring lineups on average, right? I mean, the same the same flaws that projections have when looking at individual players are the same flaws that average projections have when looking at full lineups. Um, they don't they don't think about correlation. It doesn't think about here. One one interesting experiment that you can run just to see this in practice is to look at your exposures to different stacks when sorting by saber score, and then when sorting by projected score. And Eh, not a huge impact there, um, but you'll typically see that projected score is less likely to favor uh, those um, to favor stacks. The other thing you can look at is, is your ownerships as well. Like you can watch. So if we look 207, 132, 145, 185, 162, 163, 176, right? That's Those are the ownership sums with sorted by saver score. If we sort by projected score and we go look. 207, 1, 200, 202, 197, 201, 189, right? You can almost see in real time how, how sorting by projected score doesn't look at ownership either. Um, so short answer, I, I think regardless of whether you've uploaded custom projections and exposures and things like that, I think I always lean towards the side of using Saber score instead of projected score personally. Um, I just think it does a better job of identifying the best lineups. Uh, now, it, it neither method is going to perfectly identify the highest actual scoring lineups perfectly on every slate. Um, you know, that's another question that comes in often. People will say, hey, why, uh, if this lineup has 100 Sabre score, why wasn't it my highest scoring lineup, right? Like, it's 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 never going to be perfect. But I do think Sabre score is better than projected score. Um, so, yeah. Cool. What other questions do we have, if any? Um, I think that is about it. We are right at about time here for today. So I think we'll go ahead and just cap things off right there. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in here today those watching live, uh, and also, oh, right at the last second, Jared got a PGA question with the volatility in the sport is three to four unique, absolutely ridiculous for a 20 max contest. Um, it's, it's tough. Um, I, I think four is a lot actually. Okay. I mean, this really depends a lot. This, there's a lot that this depends on. Um, I think my gut feeling is that four is a lot. I think three is okay. I'm not a big min uniques guy, first of all, right? And the reason why I'm not a big min uniques guy is because I think I, I, I can't help but feel like it is an arbitrary thing, right? It is not, 
it is not as if you are, let me, let me contrast it to sim precision, right? So there, are, I think there are two really good tools or there are two potential tools in the, in the app to force diversity into your lineups, right? Actually, I'm eating my own words now here. Um, because the sim precision slider by default is already at 10 in your lineups. Okay, I will say this. If you are building your lineups on SaberSim and you are studying your lineups and looking at your exposures and you are thinking to yourself, these are not diversified enough for me and your sim precision is already at 10 like it is by default for most large field contests, I think it is fine to then probably start experimenting with increasing your min uniques. Uh, I would probably start with two because this has a bigger impact than you might think because it compounds, right? So as you build lineup one, lineup one just gets built. Lineup two must have two players different than the first lineup. Lineup three must have two players different than the second and first lineup. Lineup four must have two players different than the third, second, and first lineup, right? This compounding effect, if you are building 500 lineups, that has a significant impact very, very quickly. Uh, so I think min uniques... If you, if you are building your lineups on SaberSim and feel like even at Sim Precision 10, they are not appropriately diversified or different from one another, I think it's fine to increase the min unique slider, but I would probably, or the setting, but I would probably start with two, run a build, see what your thoughts are, then go to three if you want to go further. I, I would probably never go above and beyond three. I think if you go above and beyond three, you are going to start significantly impact, impacting the quality of those lineups would be my concern. Um, so, but I think up to three and a 20 max is probably okay. So Patrick says, will there be adjustments to sliders for NFL when going over hundred K entrance? I don't think so. I do think we're going to be tweaking the sliders here shortly. Uh, I don't think we are going to be changing the defaults right now. Um, that will probably be another project that we tackle here in the, in the future. Um, so no, um, I think you can anecdotally follow a trend of sliders here. What am I doing? I'm, hold on. I keep looking for a real slate and I for, I'm, realize I'm not on 2020, 2021 here. So um, I think you can, I think you can anecdotally follow the trends that you see in the default sliders and then kind of figure out how you might want to change from there. Um, so for example, if you're playing 150 max contests, right? and you're playing a 250,000 person contest, right? You can look, this is this is what it, we would recommend on 1,000 to 10,000. Then at 10,000 to 50,000, correlation stays the same, but ownership comes up, sim precision comes up. At 50,000, correlation comes up just a slight bit and core ownership and sim precision come up again. If you were playing a 100,000 person contest, maybe this is the right move or something like that. Right. And to kind of analyze the, the the trends that you're seeing there and maybe make a couple of changes. We do want to do this in the future to make drop downs that fit the sport that you're playing better, because like we know that this isn't the most useful entr entrance drop down for football, given how big the contests are. Um, but it's it's not going to be it's probably not something we'll have ready for before the start of football. So. Anyway, that will be uh, we'll cap it off there for the end of the show here today. Um, I will be right back here again tomorrow, same time, same place. Well, actually, probably not same time because we started just a tad late today here. So two o'clock Eastern tomorrow. Uh, good luck in the rest of the early slate. Good luck in the main slate tonight. Uh, good luck in your golf lineups if you're playing golf. 
whatever else you got going on in the DFS world here. Um, and I will see you guys again tomorrow. Take care.